We're glad you could be back today to continue our conference on the distinctives of the Reformed faith. And if you have not received an outline at the door, you may want to have it in hand. Pick one up because I'll be following it in our two presentations this afternoon. Last evening, I began by telling you that uh, though we are talking about the distinctives of the Reformed faith, it is important for you to understand that those of us who are Reformed in our outlook do not see this simply as just one man-made theology over against others that we choose from. Uh, what we are talking about are not simply the distinctives of the Reformed faith, but as we see it, the distinctives of the Christian faith. For Reformation theology is Christianity come into its own. It is our hope that, and our uh, desire, it's what we seek, that what we teach theologically is true to the Word of God. And we do not believe that the Word of God, as I said last evening, is simply Play-Doh to be molded according to our preconceptions and desires or our needs of the moment. We believe that there is a definite system of doctrine taught in the Bible and that what is called Reformed theology over against Lutheran types of theology or Anabaptist theologies or Roman Catholic theology, what have you, we believe Reformed theology uh, best approximates, is the best expression of that system of doctrine that we find in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. What is distinctive about being Reformed? It's, it's to me very sad that in many Reformed churches, when people are asked that question, they, uh, they kind of heme and haw, and they don't necessarily have a, a well-defined answer to that, and we hope that what we're doing in this conference will help put some definition to what it is to be Reformed. But then there are a number of people who um, are not familiar with that jargon, and, and they'd like to know what is it to be Reformed. And we hope that we serve the purposes of answering that question for individuals like this today as well. If you missed last evening, let me just say a word or two about... Uh, our theme from last night, and then I'll continue today with the new one. We had two sessions last evening where we talked first about the sovereignty of God as a leading feature of Reformation theology. The sovereignty of God, as I said, God is the first word and God is the last word. God is the center of our theology. God is the first word because he made this world, he owns this world, and it must serve his purposes. God is the last word because he will judge this world and all who are in it. And finally, his standards will be brought to bear for all eternity. Uh, so the sovereignty of God is seen in that sense. He made all things, he will judge all things. Likewise, in the course of history, God is the center of our theology. And when we look at the way of redemption, we see particularly that the grace of God is emphasized in Reformed theology because we teach that God has chosen a people for himself. These people, being totally depraved and unable to please him, must then give him all the praise for their salvation. They were chosen before the foundation of the world. Christ came into this world to lay down his life, a definite atonement for them, and the Holy Spirit has been sent specifically and irresistibly to draw these individuals to himself to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will persevere to the end, those who have come to faith in Christ. They will not only be preserved by the grace of God and his sovereignty, but they will be enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to live up to the Christian life and to live through the Christian life despite all opposition, persevering to the end. We said as well that because God is sovereign, he has established his dominion in history, that uh, the course of history is under the hand of God, it's not under the hand and direction of Satan, 
and that uh, as Isaiah 40 uh, bids us to do, we must look to our God, we must know this God, uh, before whom all the nations are less than nothing, as mere grasshoppers, as Isaiah says. So there is the first distinctive of Reformed theology, an absolute stress upon the sovereignty of God who controls all things, made all things, and who will judge all things. Secondly, we talked about a Reformed understanding of redemption. In our second session, we talked about God's covenant. Many churches, uh, obviously any church that is evangelical in orientation, is going to preach the way of salvation. But not all churches understand that God's redeeming work in history is organized in terms of his covenantal relationship with his people. And so we talked a bit about God being a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God last evening. God sovereignly transacts a covenant a bonded relationship with his people. He calls for them to trust him and to obey his stipulations. And we understood, and I think this is often misunderstood and overlooked, that when someone is in a covenant relationship with God, that carries blessings or curses. To be in covenant with God is not automatically to be saved. It's to be called out from the world and have God's name put upon you, to be marked out as belonging to him, but those who do not live up to that relationship, those who do not trust and obey him, will be cursed by him. And that's why we do not believe that when people are baptized, that automatically indicates that they are saved. To be baptized, to take the Lord's Supper, is to be in a covenant relationship with God, to be marked out from the world. But it does not mean that you are regenerate. One must live up to the terms of the covenant. One must trust God as he calls us to do, trust his promises, and live by his stipulations. Now, as God has established covenants throughout history, I argued last night that all of those covenants God has made with men after the fall are essentially one covenant. They have the same basic substance, even though the outward administration may be different. In the Old Testament, God's people looked ahead to the coming of the Messiah. And so there was a sacrificial cultus, there was a temple service, there was a high priesthood, and so forth. In the New Covenant, in the New Testament, we look back upon the accomplishment of salvation where Christ is our perfect atoning sacrifice. Christ is our high priest. Christ is our temple by which we come into the very presence of God. And so there is a difference in outward administration, but it is the same covenant, the same promise, the same way of redemption. We believe as well as Reformed theologians, therefore, that there's a continuity between Old and New Testaments. And what God has morally revealed in the Old Testament is binding as well in the New Testament unless God, the lawgiver, should teach otherwise. We do not hold to the, uh, the battle cry of being New Testament Christians as though the New Testament is so absolutely new that the Old Testament as some kind of regime has been dropped off is many dispensationalists, I think, have a tendency to teach. We believe that the New Testament church is God's people, is Israel. Um, as Paul pronounces benediction at the end of the book of Galatians, upon the Israel of God, the church now is in the same position of receiving the promises of God and being in covenant relationship with God, being the people of God as Israel of old. And that's why we believe that children of believers are to be baptized. We believe that we are in the same bonded covenantal relationship as God taught to Abraham. And that was revealed progressively through the Old Testament. 
And then finally, I argued last night that the kingdom of God was established with the coming of the king, that Jesus came into this world and established his kingdom, and that kingdom will grow and have worldwide visible success before Christ returns. And when he returns, it will not be to establish a military regime on earth for a thousand years, but rather he will return to a general resurrection, both of the just and the unjust, and a general judgment of all mankind, believers and unbelievers alike. And so we have a distinctive view of God, a sovereign God. We believe in predestination, to put it very simply. And we have a distinctive view of the way of redemption. We see it as covenantal. There is continuity in the way God works throughout history with his people. So, Reformed theology holds the sovereignty of God and the covenant of grace. But now having said all that, let's come to today's themes. How are we to live our lives? What are we supposed to do according to Reformed theology as, as Christians? And it's just here that we find two very important distinctives about Reformation theology. Reformation theology teaches a distinctively Christian biblical outlook on life in the world. It also has a distinctive biblical perspective about how we should live with each other in the church. And so we're going to take that as our two themes this afternoon, life in the world and then life in the church, and try to show in what ways Reformation or Reformed Christianity stands over against the other options that are available to us today. Number three in your outline that was passed out is labeled affirmation of this world. And that may sound um, a little bit strange to you because very often the way Christianity is portrayed and the way the Christian ethic is taught, we're to be otherworldly. We are to be thinking about things that have nothing to do with this life. We are to be longing for heaven, as it were. And I hope by the end of the session I can convince you that that is, in fact, not the biblical outlook on the Christian life. Of course, we do look for a Savior that is to come. And we do rejoice that when our bodies die, our souls will go to be with him in what is called by theologians the intermediate state, that state of uh, the soul between death and the resurrection. So I'm not denying that for a moment. And nor am I saying that everything that is in this world is good when I say we affirm this world. Many sinful things happen in this world and we're to avoid them, to be sure. Nevertheless, there has been such an excess in the history of the church, in fact, throughout the history of the church, that it has become ingrained in the minds of Western intellectuals that Christianity is essentially an escapist religion. And Christianity doesn't have anything to do with this created order here. It really looks to escape from this created order. Wants to, uh, people want to go to heaven. They want to get away from the material realm because there's something wrong with matter. There's something wrong with our physical bodies. And it's in Reformed theology, especially the theology of John Calvin and his followers, that we find the correction of that excess. The physical world was created good. That's what the Bible teaches us in Genesis 1, verse 31. After God had finished his work of creation... We read, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God saw everything that he made and pronounced benediction upon it, the good word 
upon it. He said it is good. God looked at the physical world and his response was not one of revulsion. His response was not that, well, this is somehow less than perfectly spiritual, that this is not as good as it might be. He said it was very good. This created order is our natural habitat. God created the world and he created us with physical bodies to live in this world and pronounced all of that arrangement good. Christianity ought not to be characterized by a desire to escape the physical world, to get away from the things that are allegedly unspiritual because they have matter to them. Matter is not evil. Now, in traditional Roman Catholic theology, there is something of a hierarchy of good in terms of the view of reality taught by Roman Catholic theologians. The highest reality is God, which, uh, who is a person without any matter or material aspect to his being. And then you go down the scale and you have, ma- you have angels, of course, as created intelligences. Then you have man, who is a mixture of spiritual and material. And then you have those things which are animal, less than man, having both a, a, a spiritual type of quality, that is animation, as well as physical body. And then you have those things which are less than animals, which are purely matter. Actually, the gradations are, are much more refined than what I've just told you if you look at some of the complicated philosophical discourses of the medieval theologians. There is what was called a chain of being. And the highest being was God, and the lowest being on the chain, of course, is pure matter, or if you will, just to step up from that, the rocks, okay, the dirt in this world. And that which is at the top of the chain is very good, and that which is at the bottom of the chain is not so good, speaking morally. And that's why so often medieval theologians, and sadly, even theologians after the Reformation, evangelical theologians, have looked at what the Bible teaches us about flesh and spirit and have interpreted what the Bible says about flesh as referring to this physical flesh as being evil rather than the flesh being the natural condition of man that is born in rebellion against God. And so we get throughout the history of the church a contrast between living in this world which is Well, you can't avoid doing so. It's a necessary evil, but it is evil. And living in physical bodies that have desires for food and sex and sleep and so forth and and trying to minimize that. And then the Christian ethic, we have been told, which is really otherworldly, anti-material, and is centered on things that are not like, oh, sex and money and sleep and uh, the physical world roundabout. According to Reformed theology, the physical world is not to be shunned. The physical world is good. When anybody suggests to you there's something wrong with having desires or uh, involvement in this physical world, you need to take them right back to the beginning at Genesis 1 and say, God said it was good. God made us to live here. We shouldn't be ashamed of our physical bodies or our desires or those things which have uh, physical attributes to them. I think one of the strongest proofs of that fact is uh, to be seen in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. It'll be a verse well known to you, but I wonder if you've ever thought about it in this light. John 1, 14. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, that is really a fantastic verse in terms of how we should look at the created order, how we should look at the physical world, how we should look upon the physical body. The word became flesh, the Bible tells us. The incarnation, the word incarnation simply means enfleshing, the incarnation of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, in and of itself tells you that the physical world is not evil, is not to be despised, is not to be subordinated or made somehow unimportant or maybe evil. Because if it were, God himself would not have taken flesh upon himself. The physical world is affirmed in Reformation theology at creation and at the incarnation. It's also affirmed at the very end of history because we believe that the ultimate hope of the Christian is not that our souls go to heaven. I know this is probably going to surprise some of you, but I want you to stop and think about this. The Bible is relatively, and I say relatively, not absolutely, but it is relatively silent about our souls going to heaven. It is taught. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And praise God for that. I'm gl I don't believe in the doctrine of soul sleep, that there is this period of uh, blacked out existence until the resurrection. So I'm not suggesting that. I, w I wouldn't want to encourage that in you at all. But it is true that the Bible doesn't put its stress there. The stress is rather on what? The resurrection of the body. The resurrection of the body, bringing flesh and bones back now in a glorified condition for us to live in for all eternity. In Romans 8.23, Paul says, We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. All right. Now, if I were to end the reading right there, and I were to ask most evangelical Christians today, what is it that we're waiting eagerly for as the our, pardon me, our redemption uh, or adoption as sons. What does that amount to? I think what we think of automatically is, well, after we die, we're going to go to heaven. That's what we're waiting eagerly for. But notice what Paul says. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul looks for the redemption of the body. He looks forward to the resurrection from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44, the Apostle Paul says, So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is raised imperishable, in glory, in power, a spiritual body. Isn't that interesting? A spiritual body. We need to talk about that for a minute. How can we be raised a spiritual body if in the Bible spirit and body stand over against each other as two different categories of reality? Well, of course, it couldn't. You can't have a body which is also unbodied because it is spirit. And so when Paul speaks of our being raised a spiritual body, he must be using spirit in some sense other than the idea that you have the material and the immaterial. I want to suggest to you that the word spirit is used by Paul there of the Holy Spirit. And what he is referring to is our being raised, a body characterized by, animated by, directed by, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That now we will be morally perfect before God. 
we will be directed perfectly by the Spirit, and the Spirit will give life to our mortal frame once again. And so this leads to a consideration of what the Bible understands by true spirituality. You know, if we were to have given a conference this weekend on true spirituality, I dare say there would be a lot of people much more interested in something like the distinctness of the Reformed faith. Because most Christians want to be spiritual people. But you know, most Christians don't understand what it is to be spiritual either. To be spiritual is often thought of as being monastic, as being somehow uninvolved in this world, not related to matter round about us. To be spiritual is to withdraw from all of that and to emphasize those things which are not part of the body, those, are, those things which are part of the soul instead. And that is not what the Bible means by being spiritual. I know that may sound shocking, but you need to study this and think about it. I'll give you two examples before we move on to our next point. Romans, the 8th chapter, verses 5 to 9. Romans 8, the 5th verse. Paul says, For they that are after the flesh mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind of the flesh is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. And they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, the temptation for most evangelical Christian groups, I think, has been to read that kind of passage and say, okay, we shouldn't emphasize the life of the physical body. We should rather emphasize things of the mind and the spirit and the soul. And so the contrast is thought to be here between flesh, that is to say this right here, the body, and spirit, which is to say my inner person, my disembodied soul, which at this time happens to be captured in the body. But you know that can't be what Paul is teaching. Look at verse 9 again. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Oh, is that, I'm not in the body because I'm a Christian? Is that what Paul is teaching? But you are not in the flesh, interpreted as the physical body, but you are in the Spirit, if it is the case that the Spirit of God dwells in you? No. The fact that he says Spirit of God here tells you what he means by spiritual to be spiritual is to be directed by the Holy Spirit and not to be guided by our fleshly desires. And by fleshly, we don't need, need necessarily to mean bodily or physical desires. Fleshly desires are those desires of man in his natural, sinful condition. We come into this world and in the flesh, in our natural condition, we are what? Totally depraved, the Bible says. And so those who live in the flesh, that is to say, live according to the natural mind of man, of course, are sinful. It's not because they live according to the body, it's because they live according to that which is without the Holy Spirit, man in his natural condition. But those who are in the Spirit, of course, have different interests, have a different way of living. They live to please God. It doesn't mean that they live apart from the body or against the body. It simply means that they use their bodies and their minds, of course, to the glory of God. And so read Romans 5 in that light now. For they that are after the flesh mind the things of the flesh. Those who are after the natural condition or sinful condition of man live for sinful desires. But they, but they that are after the spirit 
the things of the Spirit. If we live according to the Holy Spirit, then our desires are determined by the Holy Spirit instead. For the mind of the flesh is death, the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. So you see, the contrast is not between body and soul here, it's between sin and the Holy Spirit. And that's confirmed if you look at Galatians, the fifth chapter, verses 16 to 24. Galatians 5, at the 16th verse. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Is the flesh here the physical body, or is the flesh here the sinful condition of man? For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you may not do the things that you would. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the mere resources of the law. Now the works of the flesh, of the sinful nature, are manifest which are fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, wrath, factions, divisions, parties, envyings, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I forewarn you, even as I did forewarn you, that they who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, and isn't it obvious here, Spirit means what? Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control, against such there is no law. And they that are of Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. We've crucified our bodies? Of course not. We have crucified our sinful natures, have crucified the flesh with the passions and the lust thereof. All right, so my first point this afternoon, we need to move on quickly, is that according to Reformed theology, the physical world was created good, Matter is not evil. The physical body is not evil. God created the world, pronounced it good. Jesus came into this world, took on a physical body. The hope of the Christian beyond the intermediate state is the resurrection of the body. And true spirituality in Scripture is not a matter of emphasizing internal feelings, the soul and the mind. It's rather a matter of having everything that God has given us, body and soul, directed by the Holy Spirit of God. This leads to a second distinctive, then, in Reformed thinking about life in this world. We teach that all areas of life are sacred and are to be subdued to God's glory. We do not believe that there is a more sacred area of life, as though coming to church is more sacred than what you do in your family, or that um, what you do in prayer is more sacred than what you do when you're a good cobbler and you make shoes. We do believe that all of these things are important, going to church, praying, family devotions, what have you. But we don't believe that one area of life is more sacred than others. Of course, the minute you say that, then the suggestion is that really Jesus is Lord over some areas of life more intensely or importantly than he is Lord over other areas of life. Reformed theology teaches that Christ is Lord over all we do not hold to a sacred, secular dualism, then, with respect to this world or life in this world. It's not as though some of the things we do are sacred and some of the things we do are secular. We rather believe that everything we do is to be offered up as worship and service to God, and therefore everything we do is sacred. Now, that is such a radical doctrine. It was taught at the time of the Reformation and still having a hard time sinking into the 
the hearts and the minds of God's people, that even today, I dare say, people would respond negatively if I told you that the way you choose your shoes to wear is a sacred activity. They say, oh, come on. I mean, that's just life in the world. That's not important. That's not spiritual. But what did the Apostle Paul say? That whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything is to be done to God's glory. The way we dress, the way we eat, which that's an embarrassment to most of us. But the fact is that everything we do in this world is sacred because everything we do in this world is part of our service and worship to God. Back in Romans, the 8th chapter, we saw that the Apostle Paul used the word redemption for redemption of the body. In fact, right there in Romans 8 at verse 23, the word redemption secures a complete and final deliverance from everything that is evil in this world. Redemption refers to the consummation order where all things have been renewed. It is the intent of Jesus Christ the Savior to make everything new in this world. Redemption is not just a a narrow idea about our souls going to heaven when we die. Jesus came into this world, you see, to bring the world back into conformity with God's will so that everything that man does will please God. Everything will be redeemed. In Galatians 1.4, we read, The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. We have been taken out of the present evil age and we've been put into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1, verse 13 and following, Paul says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. But notice how he goes on. For God was well pleased through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now he has reconciled you to a by Christ's body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. The work of Jesus Christ brings the forgiveness of sins. It frees us from the accusing word of the law, to be sure. But notice that the redemption he brings indicates reconciliation for everything, whether on earth or things in the heaven. Christ came to redeem the world, the entirety of man's life before God in this created order. He didn't simply come to redeem us so our souls would go to heaven when we die. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. So we believe that every area of life is sacred. Every area of life has been bought back by the redeeming love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We believe that every area of life is to be subdued to the glory of God. Christ did not come into this world simply to be Lord over our souls 
or simply to be Lord over Christians for that matter. Christ came into this world to be Lord over all. All men. All areas of life. Body and soul. Night and day. And whatever area of life we think about. And so the Bible calls us as Christians to seek the reformation of all areas of life underneath the kingship of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, All power and authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go out and make disciples of the nations and teach them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you. Jesus doesn't claim just partial victory or partial dominion. He says, All authority is mine in heaven and on earth. He taught his disciples to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We do not seek seek simply perfection and righteousness in heaven. We seek righteous obedience to God on earth now as well. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth in the Sermon on the Mount. And as I've already indicated in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. There is no area of life that is not to glorify Him. Romans 11.36, For of Him and through Him and unto Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Ephesians 1.22, He put all things in subjection under His feet and made Him to be head over all things for the sake of the church. You notice He didn't make Him to be head of the church. He made him to be head over all things for the sake of the church. For the good of God's people, Jesus rules over everything. He's Lord over all creation. The redeeming work of Jesus applies, therefore, as far as the curse of sin is found. Has sin cursed our vocations and our occupations and our use of money? If so, then the redeeming work of Christ applies to it. Has sin cursed our entertainments? Our athletic endeavors, the kind of things we do in this world for relaxation and fun, obviously it has. And the work of Jesus applies to that. Has sin cursed the way we educate our children, the way we run our families? Yes, it has. And so the work of Jesus applies to the family. Has sin cursed the political order and the social order? Absolutely. And so the work of Jesus applies to that as well. Everywhere sin is found, the redeeming work of Jesus brings restoration and reconciliation and redirection. And so our goal as God's people is to bring reform to all areas of life, to the glory of God. Jesus said we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. This makes Christianity very demanding. You see, Christianity is not just the religious part of life for those who are Christians. That would make it very easy. And sadly, that's the way it's preached from many pulpits. Christianity is simply that very narrow strip of spirituality that has to do with your prayer life, reading the Bible, coming to church on Sunday, and evangelizing. But you see, Jesus doesn't settle for that kind of lordship. Jesus doesn't want just a strip out of your life, just one of the strands that makes up the warp and woof of what you call human life in this world. He wants it all. He came to redeem it all. 
He calls you to obedience in everything that you do. He says, glorify me everywhere. Glorify me in the way that you vote. Glorify me in the way that you spend your money. Glorify me in the way that you dress and eat. Glorify me in the way you relate to other people. The way you do your job. You notice how Paul says that servants are to work heartily as unto the Lord because it's from the Lord they receive their reward. You see, Christians see all of life is dominated by Jesus Christ. Christianity is not just the religious band, the religious strip out of the whole. Christianity is the whole of life. In 1 Peter 1.15, Peter says, Be holy in all that you do. Holiness pertains not just to narrow spirituality, the life of the church or the life of the soul secretly before God in prayer. Holiness pertains to everything we do. And so... In Reformed Christianity, we see that the Christian religion is presented as a world view. A world view. Christians see all of life differently. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, the Apostle Paul teaches us that we are to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Every thought. The way we think about any subject, be it philosophy, or industry, or athletics, or economics, or politics, or family life, or church life, or theology, anything at all is to be made captive to the obedience of Christ. We try to think God's thoughts after Him. We take the Bible as the foundation for everything that we do, every belief that we have, every evaluation we make, and every decision that we follow. That makes Christianity all-embracing. We believe that life in this world is totally a matter of seeking holiness before God, bringing glory to God, and advancing the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is the Lord over all. And so let's see if we can make some real quick applications of these two premises that I've already laid down. That the physical world is good, matter is not evil. True spirituality is a matter of following the Holy Spirit, not just our inwardness or our souls, as it were. And secondly, that all areas of life are sacred. All areas of life are to be subdued to the glory of God because Christ is Lord over all. There is no sec, uh, secular area of life over against the sacred area of life. Well, three applications. One, this then means that all vocations are equally dignified before God. To be a Christian farmer is as holy an occupation as to be a Christian missionary. To be a Christian doctor or lawyer is as sacred a service before God as to be the pastor of the local congregation. You see, the body has many different functions and services. And we can't say one part to the other, I'm more important than you are, you know, you're really shameful, or you're low on the totem pole of importance. The important thing is that the whole body functions together to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head. And so we do not believe there's a hierarchy of, hierarchy of importance in Christian service. Often young people, I think, have that kind of guilt trip laid upon them where they are told that if they don't choose to go into the, into the ministry or to become a missionary or something like that, if they don't seek full-time Christian service, then there's something defective about their lives and their spirituality. Well, let me tell you something. Everyone's called to full-time Christian service. The only question is, where has God called you to serve Him? As a doctor? As 
a lawyer, as a plumber, as a cobbler, as a farmer, as a missionary, they are all equally important. They are all equally sacred and valued in the eyes of God if they are pursued to the glory of Jesus Christ. There is no special priesthood in the sense that only those who are priests, only those who are ministers, um, have the blessing of God and the pleasure of God in what they are doing. According to Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28, when God created the heavens and the earth and he defined man's task, he said that man and his wife were to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the earth, to have dominion over the earth. And that calling of man applies to everything having to do with this earth. Farming has to do with repairing airplanes. It has to do with playing sports or writing great concerts or preaching sermons. All of that is part and parcel of bringing everything God has made into his service and to glorify him. Another application of these premises is that we believe that in the world, as Christians, we are at liberty within Scripture. That is to say, as we live our lives in this world, we are free to do anything we wish to do within the boundaries set by God and his holy word. You say, well, what's so distinctive about that? What's so important about that, Dr. Bonson? Well, the implication then is that whatever God has not forbidden is permitted to us. The ascetic approach to the Christian life says, well, you really should avoid you know, bodily and worldly and physical things like, well, money or sleep or sex or eating. And the ascetic approach to the Christian life says, well, we wouldn't want to appear to be worldly in what we are doing. So, you know, if, if the world is dancing, then we wouldn't dance. Or if the world is chewing gum, we wouldn't want to chew gum. And so what happens is you, break, you, you um, bring up a whole list of do's and don'ts and taboos about living in this world that have nothing to do with the Word of God, have nothing to do with true spirituality, have nothing to do with the authority of a holy God speaking in His law. These are man-made commandments. The Reformed faith has always stood against that kind of binding of the conscience. The Reformed faith has taught we are free to do anything in this world that God has not forbidden us to do. good illustration of this, I think, is found in Romans, the 14th chapter, where Paul takes up this dispute between the weaker and the stronger brother over eating meats that have been offered to idols. And it's a passage, a scripture that has often been perverted and misapplied in fundamentalist churches, I believe, because we overlook the fact that Paul clearly sides with the stronger brother. And the stronger brother in this passage is the one who doesn't have such scruples. He says, no, there's nothing wrong with that. He has this free conscience about eating the meat. Romans 14, uh, let's look at the first three verses. But him that is weak in faith receive yet not for decisions of scruples. <laughs> Paul says, you are to receive the weaker brother in faith. You are to love him and to care for him, but you don't follow his scruples. One man has faith to eat all things, but he that is weak eats only herbs. Let him that eats not set at nothing him that eats not, and let not him that eats not judge him that eats, for God has received him. 
In verse 14, Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean of itself, save that to him who accounteth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Paul says, I know that in and of itself nothing is unclean. Of course, those who believe that something is unclean, to them it is, and they shouldn't violate their conscience and have a rebellious spirit against God, doing that which they think God forbids. But he says, in fact, nothing is unclean. He repeats this in verse 20. Overthrow not for meat's sake the work of God. All things indeed are clean, howbeit it is evil for that man who eats with offense, who has a wounded conscience with respect to it. And then chapter 15, verse 1. Now we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Throughout this passage then you see how Paul identifies with the stronger brother. And the stronger brother, the one who is strong in faith, is the one who says, I know that there's nothing unclean out there. I can eat these meats. I don't have these scruples about this. Now Paul does lay down uh, regulations for us, guidance for us, as to how we should live with brothers that are weak in faith and don't see things that way and have wounded consciences when they eat the meat offered to idols. And that's not the point of my exposition this afternoon. I simply am trying to pick up that one overlooked element, often in the exposition of the text, where it's evident that Paul sides with the stronger brother. And the stronger brother in faith is the one who says, there's nothing unclean out there. We are free to do anything that we want to in this world, as long as God has not forbidden it. And that is a completely liberating understanding of Christianity. No longer you need to go to church and sign church covenants that I won't do this and I won't do that. The one and only covenant to which I am subject and bound is the covenant God has laid upon me. And believe me, I fall so far short of living up to the real commandments of God that have genuine holiness behind them and moral authority that I don't need somebody coming along binding my conscience with a bunch of other man-made rules about worldliness and the flesh and living in the body and so forth. As a Reformed Christian, I am subject to the law of God, and I do not need to worry about enjoying this world, thinking that somehow I really shouldn't like drinking a beer. I shouldn't like sexual relations. I shouldn't like making money and living in a nicer home and so forth because somehow that's unspiritual. The Bible doesn't teach that view of spirituality. Indeed, as the fifth point in our outline puts it, nobody but God may bind the Christian's conscience. Contrary to the monastic orders of the Middle Ages where men had to take vows that they wouldn't do certain things like they wouldn't marry, They wouldn't sleep too much. They wouldn't eat too much and so forth. They would actually punish their bodies because they thought it was wrong to enjoy bodily existence. And so for the simple sake of pain, they would flagellate themselves. That's just an incredible perversion of the teaching of God's Word. There's nothing wrong with the human body. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the human body. There's nothing wrong with the physical world. And nobody but God may bind the Christian's conscience about that. But it's not just in monasticism we see that violated. I'm afraid we see it in fundamentalist churches all the time that have their own cultural taboos. I'm sorry to step on the toes of those who are closest to me theologically. And I love my 
my evangelical and fundamentalist brothers, but I have to say that they fall short of teaching God's counsel and the whole counsel of God when they lay upon the consciences of their church members do's and don'ts that God hasn't revealed in his word. What is the most obvious one that you can think of? Drinking, right? Many Christian churches say that if you enjoy alcoholic beverage, that there's something unspiritual about you, that you're living contrary to the Word of God. The sad thing to me is that the same fundamentalists who teach a high view of the authority of God's Word and would go to specific proof texts to show that Roman Catholics are wrong in their cultural taboos or uh, that something else is wrong because the Word of God teaches this, don't even look at those verses that explicitly condemn what they have just said about drinking alcoholic beverage. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, at verse 1, the apostle says, But the Spirit says expressly that in latter times some shall fall away from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And what is this demonic doctrine that Paul is concerned about? Now, this will blow you away. Through the hypocrisy of men that speak lies, branded in their own conscience as with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats which God created to be received with thanksgiving by them that believe and know the truth. Demonic doctrine is that which teaches abstinence in the Christian life that God has not commanded. Verse 4, For every creation of God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified through the word of God and prayer. Everything is to be received. Everything God has made is good when set apart by the word of God and prayer. And those who teach abstinence from that which God has made, whether it be alcohol or food or sex, or the use of money, those who teach abstinence as the way to Christian holiness have missed the boat completely. In Proverbs, the 31st chapter, we read something that I think is very surprising in terms of the modern Christian mentality about drinking alcoholic beverage. In your Bibles, look at Proverbs 31, verses 6 and 7, where a commandment is given from God to this effect. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that have bitter souls. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Not only does the Bible commend the drinking of alcoholic beverage in any number of places we could look at, but here we have a commandment from God that when you've got a friend who's down in the mouth, who is physically hurting, you are to offer him a drink to relieve part of his misery and his unhappiness. I mean, a fundamentalist would say, what is wrong with you, Dr. Bonson? You can't teach that sort of thing. And I'm saying, God teaches that sort of thing. And what got us off the path is in thinking there was something wrong with bodily desires and pleasures. There's something wrong with the physical world. God made wine for the enjoyment of man. After all, Jesus, at the best wedding reception of all history, turned the water to wine for the celebration of the people there. There's nothing wrong with wine in itself, though there is horrible things, terrible things that can be said about drunkenness and a lack of self-control. There's no doubt about that. But we must learn, I think, to 
very pure teaching of the Westminster Confession of Faith about the binding of the Christian conscience. The Westminster Confession, as I told you last evening, is uh, one of the uh, supreme expressions of Reformed Christianity and the doctrinal outlook of the Reformation churches. I'd like you to hear, as we close our afternoon, uh, uh, our first session this afternoon, what the Confession teaches us about binding the conscience. In the Confession, chapter 20, section 2, these words, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word, or beside it in matters of faith or worship. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commandments out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience, and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. I'll tell you, these words are crucial to the development of liberty in the Western world. For if the Reformers had not said against the political tyranny of Rome that tyrannized men not only morally and individually, but tyrannized men politically, if the Reformers had not said this sort of thing, the history of the Western world would be much different. Every time you enjoy liberty as a uh, citizen of this land, every time you enjoy freedom to do that which pleases you as a Christian in this world, you remember this statement of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is just that important. Because of the reformed approach to life in this world, we have taught that God alone is Lord of the conscience and that to believe the doctrines of men and to regulate our lives based on them as though it were a matter of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience that has been granted to us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Well, the Reformed approach to life in the world, then, is obviously very distinctive and in some ways controversial in our day and age, sadly. But I do believe that the Reformed understanding of life in this world is but the working out of the true teaching of God's Word about creation incarnation, final judgment, and the nature of Christ's kingdom and how we are to serve him as truly spiritual people. I believe the physical world was created good. Matter is not in itself evil, although it is used in an evil way by sinful men. I believe that all areas of life are sacred. There are no secular areas of life, and therefore all areas of life must be brought under the dominion of Jesus Christ, for he is Lord over all. I believe that every vocation that is lawfully pursued by a Christian man or woman is equally dignified before God. There is no special spirituality or special importance to a priestly calling like missionary or pastor. I believe that in this world we are free to do whatever we wish to do, provided it doesn't violate the word of God. Whatever God is not forbidden is permitted to us and that nobody may bind my conscience as a follower of Jesus Christ. Nobody but God himself may tell me what is morally right or morally wrong. And that, of course, you see, is the liberty of the Christian man, and we thank the Reformed churches for teaching it with such consistency and clarity throughout history. When we come back for our second session this afternoon, we're going to look then not at life in the world, but turn then to life in the church and see how Jesus as Lord of the church is a distinctive way for the church to be organized, run, and to worship him. Let's take a short break.